Let's pray once more. Our God and our Father, it is just a a delightful privilege to stand here today and preach your psalms, particularly this psalm. I pray that you would make it clear to us. I pray that you would have your spirit move amongst us and move through the, the simple act of speaking words that the hearing of words, that in the, the speaking and in the hearing you would do one plus one equals 3,000. You would do the things that only you can do. You would work in our hearts that you would show us where we need to change, but, but also fill us with, with joy, with strength, with rest, with firmness. Will you work in each one of us as you would see fit? Do a good work today that brings more glory to your name, I pray. Amen. Well, as, as I have considered David's psalm-making in Psalm 5, I, I want to begin today by simply saying I, I feel humbled. I feel humbled when I consider you all and some of the, the trials and the troubles that you have been through in your life. Um, many of you know from hard experience what it means to make your own psalms in the night. And so as, I, as I've thought about this, I'm, I'm grateful to be among people of such faith, people who have learned the hard way what it means to cry out to God for grace. And therefore, I'm grateful to be able to preach a psalm like this among such people. It's, it's not as though I'm up here and I know all of this and you're, you're down there needing to learn all this. We are, we are an us in this together. I feel that very much this morning. Um, so as we look at the psalm, we, we immediately see here that David is under threat from enemies and the morning has come. And the morning having come, the night has passed and he cries out to God, cries out to God. And there's, there's three questions that we're meant to ask and answer from this psalm. The, the first is one that we often assume, how, how do I get into this psalm? How do I, how do I get into it and, and, like David, and make it my own? How do I do that? That's number one. Second is what can we learn, of course? What can we learn having gotten into this psalm? What can we learn for our own praying, our own facing of trials and troubles in our life? And then the third the third is a, is a challenge to all of us. Will you, will I be a psalm maker like David when we leave here today? So we're going to ask these questions as I walk through the psalm, walk us through it first, and then look at its key principle and then apply it in, in several ways to our lives. The superscript tells us that this is a psalm of David. It doesn't say when it was written um, like Psalm 3 did, but it's highly likely that it was written in the exact same moment in history when David was fleeing from his own son who was rebelling against him, Absalom. Um, There's five stanzas in this psalm marked out by the extra spaces you see there, and each of them has three statements. And as is common in the Hebrew, um, the three statements progressively intensify, as we will see. And as is common with the psalms, while while the immediate problem comes up in the first verse, David is under threat, cries out to God, The central theme will come in the middle stanza in verses 7 and 8. 
Now, as we read each stanza, we're meant to also see the, the logical connections between the stanzas. This is because in the ancient languages, they simply had fewer words than we do. We, we have more words than the ancient Hebrews did. And because this is poetry we're reading, not a letter or a theological textbook. This is poetry. This means that sometimes there will be ambiguities. And oftentimes these ambiguities are not solved by doing a word study because sometimes there's no word there at all in the original text. And the reader is meant to figure out, well, what is that referring to? It's meant to, the, the gap is meant to capture our attention, actually, the spacing, and meant, meant for us to say, huh, what, what is he saying here? And so in order to answer that when there's no word, we need to see the context, the logical flow between the stanzas. Okay, so let me show you what I mean. In the first stanza, David calls out to his Lord, his King, and his God to give ear, to give attention, and, and listen to his words. And David even very subtly implies in verse 2, Oh Lord, I'm, I'm coming to you, so it's, it's your glory, it's, it's your reputation on the line. I pray to you. Um, then he, he comes to God in verse 3, and he comes to God in the morning with all of his cares, with all of his needs. Do you ever wake up in the morning and realize that all the cares of your life got up an hour before you and got fully dressed and are looking down over you with mean faces at you. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, yeah. But David does not stay there. He asks God to give attention to hear him, and yet something has changed because by verse 3, again, it, it, they intensify, and now David is not asking. He says, I know that God will hear me. I know that he will. Why? Because, verse 3, he has prepared something. He's prepared something, and having prepared it, he can now wait on God. And the question is, what has David prepared? The original text does not tell us. There, there is no object, there's no direct object to the verb prepared. It's just not there. Um, the reader is meant to answer that. So one option is a sacrifice, as the English Standard Version says here. That's commonly paired with the verb prepare. You would prepare the wood and the, the animal for the sacrifice. That's very common. Another option is the word prayer. David got up and, and arranged his prayer for God. Even this psalm that we're reading, he arranged it, and either is plausible, maybe both. Um, but, but look at the second stanza, verse 4. It begins with a logical connection word, the word in the ESV, for. For. When you see the word for, Bible study tip, you must ask yourself, what's the for there for? <laughs> what's, the, what's the logical connection being made? And in this case, the for implies that whatever David prepared was because God does not delight in wickedness. In fact, nothing evil can dwell or sojourn or come into the very presence of God, the very thing that David needs to do with all of his troubles, with all his threats. He needs to come into the presence of God and speak with God and lay them before God. So what, what, what's happening here, what's happening here is that David, David humbly knows how he himself was a wicked, evil, boastful, lying, bloodthirsty, and deceitful man. When? In the matter of Bathsheba and how David murdered her husband, Uriah. David is all of these things. Thus, it seems best to understand that David prepared, yes, he prepared a prayer, but what he prepared was a sacrifice 
before God so that he would be heard by God. In order to come into the presence of God, he prepared a sacrifice. A sacrifice. And yet, he says, verse 7, it's not me making the sacrifice that earns me entrance to God. It's not, it's not me doing it. It's you, O oh God, and your abundant love that would accept this. It's just wood and an, and an animal. You, but you, you accept this out of your abundant love and welcome me. Through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house, your heavenly throne room, and be heard. So now, verse 8, David finally brings his main request, that God would lead him through the turmoil that he's in and protect him from his threats. So here again, there is ambiguity. It says here, in your righteousness, in your righteousness. Does that mean that God would lead him righteously? Or does that mean that God would lead him on a path that is righteous? And it, again, it seems to me that the answer is yes to both. Because whatever is righteous is good. And so uh, whatever is straight, whatever the straight and righteous path is, David says, it must come from you, O God. It must come from your righteousness. Whatever is righteous and is good and whatever is good is righteous. And, and that's not going to come from me. It needs to come from you. So lead me in your righteousness. Do it as a gift, as a grace to me. Lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Fourth stanza, verse 9, because my position is very precarious, very precarious. David's acknowledging his own sin up above, but that allows him, that allows him to clearly see others' sin too. It doesn't mean that he can't look out and see their sin too. He does. They lie. Their core value is destruction. Even when they say positive things, it's just lying disguised uh, with niceness, flattery. They flatter. So then David makes Three requests of God in verse 10, that God would bring justice to those who are coming after him, after David. Number two, that God would bring futility, that God would bring them futility. And number three, removal, removal. So justice, that God would make them bear their own guilt, make them bear their own guilt, David says. Futility. David knows that sin often carries with it its own embedded judgment of futility. So David says, will you let that come to pass, O God? And then lastly, removal. In the abundance of your love to me, will you notice the abundance of their transgressions and cast them out? But that's not where the psalm ends. There was one more stanza. Yes, if they don't repent, let them experience these things. If they don't repent, but at the same time, let anyone, even those who are presently my enemies, let anyone who takes refuge in you, as I do, let them rejoice, not groan. Spread your protection over them, as you do for me, even to my enemies, David prays, so that they would rejoice, that they would exult in you, as I do, and then you would be even more glorified. David began this psalm by kind of putting the onus on God and saying, your glory is at stake. And now David is ending and saying, your glory is more than at stake. I want it to be enlarged by how you resolve this. Do it for you. Do it for you. For you are a God who blesses the righteous. You cover him with favor, with grace, like a shield. Some of the most beautiful words ever written, perhaps the greatest promise ever made that we see all through Scripture. 
Well, that's the psalm. So let's, let's look more deeply at its central themes in verses 7 and 8. First, again, how is it that anyone may, may enter into this psalm? How is it that anyone may come into God's presence as confidently and as expectantly, we might even say as presumptuously <laughs> as David does? Ask it another way. How do, how do we get into this psalm like David? Well, this is a problem actually. This is a problem because in our default state, we are all guilty of the things that David lists here in verses 4 through 6. We all delight in wickedness sometimes. We all have evils within us. We boast. We do evil things. We, we speak lies. We are all bloodthirsty. Bloodthirsty, you say? Oh, of course. Of course we're bloodthirsty. Oh, we, 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 we don't kill each other. That would be too, you know, socially impolite. We don't kill each other. We just slander each other, you know. We just kill each other's reputations as a generation. Um, that's what social media is for, um, to kill each other's reputations. We are bloodthirsty, full of deceit. We are. We lie, 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 and pay people to lie to us. Verse 9, our best ideas as a generation are just to tear things down, hoping by insane faith that somehow they will be built back up again. Our generation loves to teach, teach, teach things with our mouths that lead people to the grave. We flatter each other. Oh, you're just great the way you are. And that only leads to destruction. Our mouths are open graves. Now, someone might say, there you go, being negative. Guilt, guilt, guilt. That's all you preachers got, is guilt. If we were just to take away the guilt part, then the whole thing would be fine, you know? Then we could just leave each other be. You know, you do you, and I'll do me, and we're good. All you got is guilt, guilt, guilt. Okay, thank you for that feedback. Hypothetical you. And... Thank you for proving my point. What do you mean, you say? Well, yeah, thanks for proving my point. Because in saying that I'm all about guilt, don't you want me to feel guilty about that? <laughs> aren't, aren't you imposing guilt or assigning guilt on me? Aren't you implying that I'm guilty of focusing too much on guilt? You and I, dear hypothetical person, we are both about guilt. That's not the question. The, the question is by what standard do you determine guilt, you, hypothetical person. It seems you too believe in a higher standard, a giver of law, a God. The question is, which God are each of us appealing to as our standard? That's the question. And then we must ask, do you or do I have any good news for covering, for cleansing, for taking away that guilt, for redemption? I do. <laughs> you hypothetical person because the standard that i appeal to is the one that david does the god of the bible the god of the bible we, but we have to understand we are immediately confronted with a paradox about this god and that is and that is true there is a there is a striking paradox with this god because this is a god that welcomes david with an abundance of steadfast love in verse 7 despite all that david has done he welcomes him with an abundance of steadfast love. And yet this same God not only does not delight in wickedness, but he doesn't even allow evil into his presence. That's verse 4. And then, more than that, David says, we've got to say this out loud, this God, it says, straight out hates all evildoers. That's what the text says. Hmm. So again, someone might say, see, that's evil. You don't hate? That's bad to hate. It's bad. What kind of God is that? 
And again I ask, by what standard do you judge this God? Is there another Bible or another God above this God? Or no God at all? But if there is no God at all, then but what, by what higher standard are you appealing to to say that this God is bad? What's your higher standard? If we are all just products of time and chance and dust, then what standard is there? What does it matter what I say? Who's your God? Could it be you, hypothetical person? But consider that the God of the Bible is God. He is God, which means he sees and feels every aspect of reality fully all the time. Fully all the time. We humans don't. We humans don't, but sometimes we come close. Um, Brian Chapel, a preacher in Illinois, a favorite of mine, tells the time that he came into his kitchen. I might have told the story before, but he came into the kitchen only to see his young son up like on the counter, leaning on the cabinet door, you know, reaching for the proverbial cookie jar, you know. And Chapel comes in and says, don't do that. And his son's hanging there, you know, and looks at his father <laughs> and reaches and reaches and fell and hit everything on the way down. <laughs> and Chapel says, in that moment, I felt such love and hatred. <laughs> And if you're a parent, you know exactly what this feels like. Such burning love and burning hatred in that moment. It's such a strange feeling to want to save your kid and drop kick them at the same time. You know. So, so this, this is just a, a little moment, but he, he, Chapel could feel that in one moment. God feels that 100% of the time, all the time. God knows our suffering, and he knows how we might flourish in his word, and therefore he also knows what this rebellion is like that separates us from him. He feels this all the time, all the time. This is why he sent his own son, Jesus. He sent Jesus because he hates evildoers, and he so loves the world at the same time. Both. He sent Jesus, verse 10, to become us and to bear our guilt for us. By becoming us, he fell for our counsels. Because of the abundance of our transgressions, he was cast out of the city to that barren hill called Calvary. We have all rebelled against God, so God prepared a sacrifice that we might be welcomed into his presence. It is no coincidence that when Jesus died, the veil separating the people from the holy of holies in the temple was torn in two. God welcomed his people in the sacrifice of Christ. This is why when Psalm 5 is quoted in the New Testament, the context changes. Here in in Psalm 5, David in verse 9 speaks of his enemy's throats being an open grave. So does Paul in Romans 3, applying it to all of us. We should identify as much with David's enemies at first in this psalm as we do with David. 
But while David then asked God that his enemies would bear their own guilt, Paul goes on to explain how Jesus bore our guilt instead. Romans 3, beginning in verse 22, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. That word means to be made to stand righteous before God, to be welcomed into his presence. We are all justified by his grace, his favor as a gift as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. And that $10 word simply means a sacrifice that makes God smile upon the person sacrificed for, that makes God favorable to. His sins, our sins were accounted to him and his righteousness was accounted to us as God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, by faith. Us, this is for us, we who receive this propitiation, this gift by faith, by faith. The us here is anyone who believes in Jesus. And the reason why, the reason why it is all by faith is that God will get all of the glory. God will get all the glory. God does not allow us to smuggle in any self-effort into this moment in our own. He does it all and thus he gets all the glory. So back to Psalm 5 verse 3. On that good Friday morning, the greater David prepared a sacrifice, a sacrifice of himself for God, that God might be justified, that God might be justified in showing favor to evildoers, that God might be just and fair in showing such undeserved favor to such evildoers as the enemy of himself, and to be the justifier of sinners, to make us just so that we might stand righteous before God in his presence. Jesus prepared himself as a sacrifice and watched from the cross as God turned his back on him and became propitious, favorable towards us, we who believe. So, the first application of this psalm, what what do we do with this psalm? The first application, quite simply, is to believe the gospel. (laughs) Believe the good news. Believe the good news that your guilt is covered, or it can be, it can be, if you would believe and become a Christian, if you're not. Because if you're not a Christian, I'm going to list blessings here in just a second. None of these blessings that I'm going to speak about apply to you yet. They're not for you. They're for those who have believed. But you can be a Christian, so I exhort you, please believe on Christ if you've not. But Christians, too, must believe the gospel. We must believe the gospel because sometimes Satan does his finest work in us, not in our sin, but after our sin. After our sin. Saying you're not good enough to go to God. Too many failures. God is scowling at you. God hates you. Look at you. God's got his arms folded, his eyebrows furrowed at you. But if we believe the devil's gospel, and that's what that is, we'll commit another sin, that is, the sin of silence, of going silent on God. I I get this from Hosea 7, verse 14. It says there that despite all that Israel had done wrong, it was, and and that was a lot, it was a lot, God says in verse 13, I would redeem them. 
even still, even still at this point, I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They slandered God in their hearts. They believe the devil's lies in their hearts. He hates you. He doesn't love you. His love is not steadfast towards you. So the people believing those lies, Hosea 7, 14, it says there, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. They cried to their pillows instead of to God because they did not believe the gospel, the love, the steadfast love of God towards them. But God says, cry out to me and I will redeem you. Yeah, but you don't know. No, I will. As we just sang, no matter what your sins are, his love, his mercy is stronger. It is stronger. But to cry out to him, to 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 lift up and to repent up to him requires stepping past our shame and regret and guilt. And that requires believing the gospel afresh and answering the question, just how steadfast is God's love towards me? How steadfast is it? Do I love God is not near an important question as whether God loves me or not. How steadfast is your love matters a lot less than how steadfast his love is towards you. How steadfast is his love in the face of our failings and weakness? Well, let me show you the cross that Paul says later in Romans 8. Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? When he's already done the biggest thing, the harder thing, what is anything else <laughs> to him? And by all things here, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? By all things here, I believe Paul means something of what he said earlier in uh, Romans uh, 8.28, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things even the consequences of our sin, even our sin itself, God will use it for the good of those who love him. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. Or as David puts it in the last verse of Psalm 5, you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor, with grace, which is another word for um, his smile, his 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 undeserved um, disposition of, of, of blessing. And God does this as with a shield. He protects us. And again, who are the righteous? Those God has gifted righteous to, righteousness to, having removed their guilt, placed it on his son in hatred and in love. These are the ones that God then, in response, covers with favor, grace, like a shield. Okay, so what, what does this favor like a shield, look like? What is it? What is it? Well, we need to ask ourselves this because we too have enemies. We too have enemies. Some Christians today think that this is too hard a word, man. You got to back off a little bit. That's, that's kind of a hard word to say, enemies. But the reality is that Christians have many enemies, have, all through history, all through history. Now, we need to understand the difference. We talk about enemies. We need to make one quick distinction that out there, there are plenty of deceived people, deceived people who, who have been fed lives and, and don't even realize that they're, they're working someone else's game plan of lying and deception and hurt. 
They don't realize that. Um, we need to realize that. that for instance, the, the teacher that imparts doctrines to her students that are patently anti-Christian may just feel like she's doing her job. She, she, may, not, she may not, in that sense, be an, an enemy enemy, but that curriculum, those doctrines came from someone. They came from somewhere. For instance, it was just brought to light this week that in 2012, a program was in, introduced in Sac City schools that introduced doctrines of humanity that are the opposite of the biblical doctrines for anthropology and humanity and sought for those doctrines to be taught at every grade level in every subject. And this plan, this program, has been going on at least for the last decade. For eight hours a day, the work of Christian parents has been systematically undermined in Sacramento City schools in every grade and in every subject. In other words, the mouths of those teachers have become an open grave, leading kids to perdition. Now, I don't share this as a, as a political statement. I, I share this as a spiritual reality that's right up the road. And anyone who leads kids to perdition, I don't know about you, but I, I think I call that an enemy. <laughs> I think I call that an enemy. The question is, what, what do we do about that? Or to ask it another way, uh, what might we expect God to do once we pray? Well, the first thing David says is, pray about that. In your displeasure about that, do you pray? Does that go down on a sheet of paper, and does it get prayed for? But once we have prayed, what action is God predisposed to do? What, what can we expect him to do? Well, there's seven expectations that we should have in faith. Number one, number one, you can expect when you complain to God about what they are doing that God will hear you. You can expect that God will hear you, especially if your attitude is one of, there go I, but for your steadfast love and grace. I could just as easily be there right along with that teacher teaching the exact same thing, absent without, if it weren't for your intervention in my life, your supernatural intervention. So, and again, just because we are sinners does not mean that we have no right to complain to God. When, because when we come to Christ, we, we slowly but surely begin to see our world more accurately with hearts of love towards God and our neighbor. And so we will naturally find ourselves increasingly displeased with, with deception and sin and abuse. But again, God hears our complaint, not by our righteousness, but according to the righteousness of Christ. So, by faith in that, we can expect, number one, to be heard by God. Number two, you can expect for God to give you wisdom and clarity in your personal response to it, which will vary from person to person, depending on lots of things. But you can expect God to make his way straight to you, to clear a path for you for constructive action, whatever it is for you. That's number two. Number three, you can expect God to protect you as you endeavor to love him and your neighbor. Verse 12 means you and I are bulletproof until we're not. <laughs> we're bulletproof until we're not. As Psalm 84 will put it later, God is a sun and a shield about his people. He will protect you. You're bulletproof until you're not. <laughs> Number four, you can expect at the judgment at the end of time that every sin that you see today, your own included, 
Every sin that you see today will either be hung around their own neck or the neck of Christ. And there is no third option. Either around their neck or the neck of Christ. Either way, you will see justice done. A sobering thought. You will see justice done. And thus, we take every opportunity, because of that reality, we take every opportunity, as God did with us, while we were yet still his enemies, to preach this gospel. Not only a gospel of guilt, but there there is guilt, but a gospel of redemption, of forgiveness. Remembering, if David could be forgiven, so can anyone. So can anyone. We preach the gospel to our enemies. We take every opportunity to do this. So that's number four. Number five, you can also expect that sin carries with it its own destruction. I get this from the second phrase of verse 10. You can expect people to become exhausted with the futility of living life by doctrines that do not correspond with the created realities of humankind and this world. It just doesn't work by God's design. By God's design, it just doesn't work. Pride, pride of life, pride of knowledge, pride of um, new, new uh, schemes, it inflates us. It fills us up and it inflates us and it makes us look big, but that's only bloating. That's only the bloating of pride and that's not the same thing as being strong and hearty. Those who are bloated eventually pop. This world, this world is very hard on fools very hard on foolishness by God's design. You can bet on it. Number six, you can expect God to sometimes cast out evildoers. The third phrase of verse 10, sometimes God does intervene in the here and now and expose sin and root it out, perhaps by your actions, perhaps by another. But eventually God, sometimes God does root out sin And that person that was once there doing all kinds of things is suddenly gone, never to be seen again. Lastly, number seven, you can expect as you see and experience God's favor upon you, as you walk each day believing afresh in the steadfastness of his love, as you you labor to believe it, to, to live a life in that love, what you can expect, what you can bet on, is that you will experience a life of increasing joy, even while you wait for God's answers. Even though you may say, God, how long is it going to be, O oh Lord? How much longer is it going to be? Even as you wait for God's answers, you can expect to have a heart that increasingly sings to God, even while their transgressions do not change and continue to overflow. You can expect, verse 11, as God extends his protection over you, that you will love him more and more, and you will exult in him. You can expect your home, your work, your bedroom, your commute, all of these places and more to become places of joy for you. And a, a joy that brings glory to God in the darkness. Where, because where does that come from? Despite everything that's happening in the world, despite all that they're doing, where does that come from? It comes from God. It comes from the steadfast love of a God who proved his love to me on a cross and on an empty tomb. That's where it comes from. And all of that, that, that joy, that exaltation, oh, it is, it, it's some, as I heard someone say recently, um, um, Something, I'm sorry, something to the effect of uh, they can't beat people who are having fun. 
who are enjoying themselves. Those kinds of people are unbeatable. After all, the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. As the, the people who live in the steadfast love of God, they go from joy to joy, from grace to grace, from strength to strength, the Psalm 84 says. And it all begins with faith, faith in the steadfast, unchanging, unbreakable love of God for you. Not in general, for you. So, one more point of application for some of you, you may be saying, yeah, Jed, that sounds good, but I'm just, ugh, just weak in my faith. Okay, let, let's just start here. Let's just start. If that's you, let's just start here. Maybe take out a sheet of paper now or later and say, write on it, do I believe is the steadfast love of God for me? And write on there, yes, space, or no, space, and then circle one. Circle one and look at it. Look at it. Tell your preach the gospel to yourself. Number two, this is why in James, James 5.16, James commands us to confess our sins one to another because sometimes in our sin and our failings and our regret and our shame, we just will not let ourselves off the hook. And we need to confess our sins one to another, not to shame and berate and give each other you know, shallow advice. Just do this, just do this. But to be able to hear the gospel afresh from the other person. You know the gospel's still true for you, right? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it totally is. Let's go get some ice cream. <laughs> That's what's meant to happen when we confess our sins one to another. Um, and that... And then you receive the gospel afresh. It's been preached to you, and now you're free. Now you're free. Now you believe, oh yes, the steadfast love of God is actually steadfast for me personally. Maybe that's what you need to do. I, I don't know. But regardless, this is why, in conclusion, why Paul, when he's wrapping up the first half of his letter to the Ephesians, he's like, okay, let me pray for you, and let me think, what is the... If I could just pray for one thing, this is the last thing I ever pray for you, what's it going to be? The most important thing, Ephesians 3, verses um, 14 through 19. Well, it's, let me start in verse 11. That according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, in Christ Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, then Paul prays, verses 14 through 19, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Power for what? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, Paul, power for what? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth implied of his love. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you pray nothing else, pray for yourself. Oh God, grant me faith to believe in your steadfast love in the face of my enemies. And God will do what, he, what David said that God did for him. He will prepare a table uh, for you in the presence of your enemies and you will sit at this table and feast. <laughs> you will have a joy that will be inexplicable to the world.
and unbeatable. And unbeatable, no matter what they do. Unbeatable. So, pray for that. Pray for that. Pray that God would give you faith to believe in his steadfast love and therefore pray for the gospel to reside and dwell richly within you. So, let me apply that now. Let me, let me pray for that now for all of us. Oh God, I, I pray that first for myself. You have given us your son. You have given us him in full. You've given us him in his life hanging on a cross. And you have given us him in his life raised from the dead for us. You have given us everything in him. How could your love be any more steadfast towards us as a gift to us, we who were once your enemies, but for whom you have lavished grace upon us? You've covered us. You've covered our guilt. You've covered our shame by his blood, by his sacrifice for us. How, how could you do more? And yet your word says that Having given us all of this, how will you not also graciously with him give us all things? God, sometimes I read your word and I think to myself, you're too good to be true. You're too good to be true. And yet I disbelieve. Help my unbelief. Help my faith. And do that in all of us. Grant us to be strengthened. Grant us to be filled with power in the knowledge of your amazing steadfast love towards us. And will you get much glory? Will you get much glory by our joy in you? So do that, pray. I, I, do that, please, I pray. Um, as was prayed earlier, in the name of Jesus, do that, we ask. Amen. Re receive the benediction. We, we just sang a minute ago that it is finished. It is done. The steadfast love of God for us is sealed in his cross, in his resurrection. So believe that, Christian. Go today rejoicing, rejoicing in that truth. It's true for you. Amen. Go in peace.